Uh, Well, friends, we come again uh, to preaching God's Word. We are in Matthew chapter 23 this morning, and it's our habit and practice as a church to work our way systematically through the Bible. And as we come through a book of the Bible like Matthew, we come across hard passages, big passages. Today is a long chapter and a hard chapter. Um, It might be jarring as you hear it, depending on um, what you think of Jesus, um, but let's, let's lean in with humble hearts and open hearts as we hear God's word. And there's very important words as every week, uh, but there's a very important word for us here this morning. And so let's lean in, let's listen uh, to the word of God. So we're in Matthew chapter 23. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, just put your hand up and Arby will get you one. Uh, otherwise it will be, yeah, there we go. Um, it'll be on the screen And uh, I'm going to pray before I read. I need extra help this morning. Crikey. Almighty Lord God, we ask that you may bless the preaching and reading of your word this morning. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, Well, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So, whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. 
And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! If you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, well, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar." Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Well, at first glance, this passage looks troubling to our modern ear, doesn't it? It seems like a foaming at the mouth rant from a disillusioned Jesus at the end of his life. At the end of a long period of questioning in the temple, we saw in Matthew 22, and end of a long week, is he just bursting out in a rage and a rant and a diatribe? It seems more like this is appropriate for YouTube comments thread, a Sky News monologue, or a protest rally. But instead, these words, they come from the mouth of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in the temple of God, from the one who self-proclaimed in Matthew 11 that I am gentle and lowly. 
And we can't downplay the language. You heard it seven times. He calls the Pharisees hypocrites. Blind five times. Even blind fools. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. He charges these Pharisees, these leaders, with robbery and murder and persecution. And we might think, how, how, can, how can Jesus really say these things? It's, isn't it just offensive and rude? Or you might be on the other end of the spectrum and you think, yeah, give it to them, Jesus. They deserve it. So how are we meant to come at this chapter and why is it, why is it here? Well, as we look at this whole chapter, and we're not going to go into every detail of the chapter today, there's three kind of clear parts to it. In verses 1 to 12, there's a warning. In verses 13 to 36, there's those seven woes, like the seven Beatitudes Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount. Now there's seven negative Beatitudes in that sense. And then at the end, the last bit, you would have noticed there's sort of a weeping. So there's a warning, a weeping, a woes and a weeping. And by looking at that structure, it actually gives us a clue as to how we interpret the passage. We can see that it's, it's not just an angry rant or an abusive diatribe. Look again at the end of the passage, verse 37. After all the warning and the woes, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You notice Jesus' love, care, and tender affection. He repeats, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's, there's affection and love. There's heart there. Now look at that image. A, a, Jesus is picturing himself as a big chicken, <laughs> a big mother hen. With little baby, cute, tiny little duck, uh, ducklings, chick, chickens, chicks. Um, and, and he's saying, I, I just want to get you under my wings and protect you from all these errors. Yet they're unwilling. And so their unwillingness brings forth out of Jesus this stern word. But we see from the structure that this stern word, it's a warning but it's a warning which clearly comes from a place of love. It's a stern warning that comes from a place of love and concern. I don't know if you've ever received such a stern warning from a loving friend, perhaps a parent, a teacher, a spouse, perhaps. <laughs> and you, it was biting, it hurt, but it actually, you knew where it was coming from and it was good, it was, it was helpful. Or maybe you've had to give one of those stern, loving warnings. Not because you're angry at someone, but you're sort of angry for them. You want better for them. And so you bring a word, but it's not, it's not a rant. It's, it's a loving rebuke. It can be jarring and foreign to receive. It can be jarring and foreign to give. But when it's done right, ah, we can receive it as a place of love and care. Because the point of this kind of speech is to save and not condemn. And so today we have a loving warning from Christ to save and protect us from the deadly dangers of false worship. This whole chapter, the whole point of this chapter is... Have I done something wrong? 
we, have, we nearly had, we nearly had, thank you, Richard. See, chief janitor, he's helping. <laughs> he's helping. That was a loving warning right there. That was good. That was, I didn't plan that, but that worked out. We have a loving warning here to save and protect us from the deadly dangers of false worship. You see, Jesus here warns in order to protect. He wounds in order to heal. He strikes in order to save. If you picture it in another sense, it's like he's lancing a boil. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had an infected boil. I have. <laughs> my wife can testify to, I tried to pop a pimple on my back once with dirty hands, and it just became an infection, and it grew, and it grew, and it got to about that big and at that point, you can't fix it. You need a trained medical professional who knows what they're doing. I had to go in. They gave me local anesthetic. They cleaned it all up. They lanced it. They cut it. And then for weeks, my beautiful wife had to squeeze it out. And Now, if you, if you leave that boil there, if you don't deal with it, uh, it's going to kill you. You get some kind of infection which will just take over your body. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's lancing a boil. And the boil that he's going after is false worship, religious hypocrisy. You see, one of the most dangerous things on earth is not the threat of nuclear warfare, though it is incredibly dangerous, or illicit drugs in the streets, or too much screen time but actually false worship, false worship. And we know how dangerous false worship is, is just how much time Jesus gives to it in this chapter. Look how long this chapter is, how detailed it is. The severity length in which Jesus launches into this dialogue should alert us that this isn't a minor problem or a small threat. And false religion is everywhere. Our city is rife with it. Paramount is beautiful, multicultural, but multi-faith, multi-religion. And any religion which doesn't have Christ at the center is a false religion. And false worship leads to eternal destruction. Because if you get your worship wrong of God, it has consequences not just for now. It has consequences for eternity. That's why Jesus has to lance the boil. But it's not just a problem for out there. For those people. It's a problem for us. And especially for us in the church. Because that's who Jesus is addressing in this speech. He's not speaking to the pagan religions, the false worshippers out there. He's speaking to the most God-fearing religious people in all of Israel. How many hypocrites are inside our churches standing behind pulpits preaching? It's a warning for us, for you to warn against me. It's a warning for you to look out for within each other. And it's a warning for you to look out for within yourself. Because the reality is the Pharisees weren't bad guys. The Pharisees were the good guys. If we were in first century Israel... We would have liked the Pharisees. Parents sent their kids to train under the Pharisees. 
Every week, the religious Jews went to the synagogue to sit under the teaching of the Pharisees as they sat, as we saw, in Moses' seat, explaining to them how to follow God. The Pharisees were the good guys. They were the pastors. They were the core team leaders. They were the life group leaders. They were the ones who everyone thought knew God. But dangerously, they were so far off. And David Platt says of this text, for this very reason, this text offers us a serious caution. One sobering reality stands before us in this passage. It is possible for you and me to believe genuinely that we are doing God's work, obeying God's word and accomplishing God's will, yet to be, de- to be deceived and to experience eternal damnation. It's a serious word here, a serious caution. So the question that Jesus is asking of us all this morning is, are you and I being infected by false worship, false religion? And how how could we know and, and what's the solution? And thankfully today in this passage, we have a loving warning to save and protect us from these deadly dangers. And so... To get to that point, I've got two points for us this morning. The fruit of false worship and the cure for false worship. The fruit of false worship and the cure for false worship. So point number one, the fruit of false worship. So how do we know? How do we know if our worship is going rotten? How do we know if there's something wrong in our religious devotion? Well, thankfully, in this passage, Jesus actually highlights a lot of the symptoms that we might see in the lives of leaders like me that you should look out for. (laughs) And the same symptoms might be present in you also and in your friends that you love here in this church. And I'm going to highlight seven fruits, seven rotten fruits that Jesus kind of shows us uh, symptoms of that we can see, oh, there's the boil <laughs> that needs lancing. And it might, some of these might apply to you, some of them might not. But I reckon they'll probably, yeah, I think they'll probably hit us in various ways um, depending on where we fall into this danger. So fruit number one, failing to practice what you preach. And I don't know if it's just me, but maybe we can turn the aircon down because it's becoming like a sauna. <laughs> Uh, verse 2 and 4. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The first fruit that Jesus identifies is not practicing what you preach. Are you someone... Or am I someone who has lots of things to say to people about what they should do in their life and how they should live and what God requires of them, but actually, in your heart of hearts, you don't really do it yourself? Um, it's a real danger for parents. Lots of correction, uh, but maybe they are the way that they are because they see it in us. <laughs> and so they're mirroring what we do. So we're correcting them. Don't be angry. Don't be harsh. Don't be ill-tempered. <laughs> hmm. Maybe you're a life group leader and you, give, you like to give lots of advice. Maybe you're a pastor and every week you get up and you preach. But do you practice 
what you preach? Or do you just load burdens upon people? Thou shalt not, and thou shalt. You should do this. You're like, advice, advice, advice. But actually, there's no follow-through in your own life. Fruit number two. Doing Christian things to be seen by others rather than by God. Doing Christian things to be seen by others rather than by God. Verse five. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Let me explain that. They had, um, in the Old Testament, God told the Israelites to hide the word of God like, and, and memorize it and to bind it on themselves. And so really religious Pharisees who were like, well, I've got to obey every letter of the law, would literally like write it on little tiny scrolls and then make a leather strap and weave it into their hair and then put the scroll on their little leather strap. So they'd walk around with the word of God hanging off their head. And everyone was like, whoa, you are so religious. <laughs> Obviously, in our day, they would have just looked ridiculous. Uh, but they, they like to show it off and they'd make it bigger. So you've got like scroll head, you know, it's sort of like... Instead of like big bling or grills or something like that, the Pharisees have got phylacteries, you know, and big fringes. And that was their, that was their repping. That was their bling. That was their showing off. Uh, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. It's a, it's a damning sentence. And a real dangerous one, though, isn't it? It's so dangerous for us. How often, how easy it is to be doing Christian things with one eye open. Praying with one eye open, attending life group with one eye open, giving with one eye open, wondering, is anyone watching? <laughs> did anyone notice? Is anyone taking note? Is anyone ticking the box? I'm here. <laughs> I did it. I'm serving. And this, this, this thing is that actually what looks like worship to God is actually a performance to others. Oh, that's, a, that's a real danger of false worship, of religious hypocrisy. I remember once I, um, I was about 17 and uh, we were having a prayer night at my young adults group that I was a part of. And man, I prayed some amazing prayers. They were so good. These prayers in this prayer meeting were so passionate and so eloquent and amazing. And I was like, at the end of it, I literally was like, wow, <laughs> they were pretty good prayers. And so one of my leaders actually said, oh, Riley, can I speak to you um, later? I was like, yes. And I, in my head, I was like, he's, gonna, he's literally going to go, I'm really encouraged by your prayers. <laughs> and he pulled me into a room and then he said, I want to talk to you about last night. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't pray great last night. What, what happened last night? And the night before, actually, we'd just been hanging out as a bunch of youth and playing a game called FIFA, playing soccer. And I'd been really arrogant and sort of like looking down on this one guy and really kind of <laughs> proud. And, and he was like, that's just, that's not okay. Your pride and your arrogance there. It was really distressing to see because you made him feel really terrible. And I actually think you should apologize to him. <laughs> so I went into that meeting expecting an applause for my amazing prayers. But instead, in God's kindness, I got a, a stern and you know, rebuke from a loving friend who showed me and it wasn't even about that, but it was the root of my problem in my prayer and in my playing of my game was pride. It was this sense of, I think I'm better than others. Uh, I want people to see how good I am. Whether it's playing FIFA or prayer, the same root was there. Come on, that rhymed. Anyone? Okay. Uh, fruit three. 
So fruit two was doing Christian things to be seen by others rather than by God. Rotten fruit three, that you might be falling into religious hypocrisy and pride, loving and enjoying spiritual credibility and fame. Loving and enjoying spiritual credibility and fame, verse six and seven. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They love it. They love it. They love that moment when they're recognized for how godly they are, how prominent they are. They love it when they get a new title. Pastor, core team member, life group leader, chief steward, chief janitor, (laughs) worship leader, whatever. There's this sense of like, yeah, I love that. Love the respect you can get from being someone who really prays well or leads well. The respect you get from the way that you serve God and you begin to take pride in and enjoy your spiritual credibility. It's, it's a sign that something's really amiss. So do you enjoy any positions, whether titles or just everyone knows you as that person, of spiritual superiority, influence and power over others? where you think, yeah, I'm better than them. I'm better than those people in my life group, (laughs) whatever it is. It's another rotten fruit. Loving and enjoying spiritual credibility and fame. Fruit number four, you bend God's rules to make it easier to obey. Won't go into the details of verse 16 to 22 about the oaths, but the general gist of it is, like, if you make an oath, you should keep it. But the Pharisees were like, oh, it's, you know, we don't really want to have to keep our oaths when we don't want to. So we'll bend God's laws to make it convenient for us. Uh, and, that, and that leads into the next one, fruit number five. Um, you pride yourself on following convenient laws and neglect the major and more difficult ones. Verse 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and, is it cumin? Okay, good. Yeah. I, I doubted myself as I said it before. I was like, is it human or yeah, okay. Human. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. <laughs> Such a, a brilliant image from Jesus there. The idea there is that you find you find rules, ostentatious displays of righteousness, which are easy for you to do. You major in on them, and then you minor on the things that God thinks are major. So they, you know, Old Testament Israelites were commanded to tithe, and so you meant to tithe your agricultural crops, your you know your livestock, things like that. And the Pharisees were so righteous that they took that principle even to their spice rack. And so they would click off, you know, one thing of rosemary and then, you know, give it to the Lord and then keep the other nine for themselves. And Jesus says like that, okay, great. If, you, if that's what you feel compelled by God to do, do that. But don't do that, pride yourself on that and neglect the whole weightier matters of the law. Look what he says there, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's so much easier to have a perfect attendance record at church and life group and tick off your Bible reading and prayer and give and serve when you're on roster than it is to love people who are difficult to love, 
to give your life and your time and your energy and your soul away for the downcast and the hurting. Jesus is picking up there on Micah 6.8, that famous verse which Micah says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Yeah, sure, tithe, you human. <laughs> but don't neglect loving the people who are poor, spending your life to bring other people in to know God and care for them. So the fruit there is priding yourself on the convenient, easy Christian things to do, but neglecting the hard, weighty matters of the law, like love your neighbor. Now, that's a struggle for me. I find it so much easier to tick the box than to sacrificially love people who are different or hard or far away. Rotten fruit number six. It's a bit of a similar one to before. You're more concerned with your external appearance than your internal condition. Verse 25 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What he's saying there is that the Pharisees would rather appear to be righteous than actually be righteous. They didn't swear in public. They didn't get drunk all the time. There wasn't, you know, if you check their internet search, there wasn't porn sites, all that. They, they were clean. It was easy. But inside their heart, they weren't willing to put real sin to death. And that's a danger for you, for me. Do you want people to see you as righteous, but you actually don't want to attack it yourself? And the danger is, is that you can look like a great Christian in our church, but be spiritually dead on the inside, spiritually unclean. You know, every day when you have your coffee, you wash the cup out, right? <laughs> you don't leave all the milk and stuff in the bottom and clean the outside and then go to the coffee machine the next day and hit it again and again and again because that would be gross. You'd have like, you know, fermented milk and then you get a boil on your back. That's what would happen. But spiritually, we can do that. Spiritually, we can do that. We clean the outside. We prop ourselves up we come to church we've had an argument but we're just going to be okay we're good and we go to life group we know there's all these sins in our life but actually i'm just going to be like yeah yeah things are pretty good yeah nothing really to share not really trying to like you know i know i need god um pray pray you know give me grace to love people but actually you're not wanting to get the scouring brush out and clean the inside and if you're unwilling to do that jesus is saying oh watch out there's something going wrong So you're more concerned with your external appearance and internal condition. Last one, okay, lots of, there's a lot in here. The last rotten fruit. You're sitting there thinking, none of these could possibly describe me. The last rotten fruit is you think that none of these could possibly describe you. Look at verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets, 
decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, Well, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. They blinded themselves to indwelling sin. They thought, if we lived back then, we wouldn't have killed the prophets like our forefathers did. We honor them. Look at our temples. Look at our monuments. Look at our churches. We wouldn't have done that. And so if you're sitting there thinking, nah, not me. I wouldn't be like these Pharisees. I'm, I'm good. I'm righteous. I'm, you know, I'm good with Christ. There's no temptation within me for false worship, religious hypocrisy. Then Jesus would look and say, oh, I think the fruit's right there. One of the things that um, ought to be implanted in our being, our psyche as followers of God, is that if we were there, we probably would have been like the Pharisees. I know I would have been. Legalists, external you know, strong, preaching, teaching, you know, come on, do this, all that type of stuff. It would have been my face in the crowd crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And if you think it couldn't have been your face turning on Christ, then I think you're spiritually deceived. An old hymn, Horatius Bonar, he says this, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree." I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, making the sufferers groan, mocking the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Now, that's a heart not racked by religious hypocrisy. That's a heart that knows if it wasn't for the grace of God, that would have been me. All right, so there's seven fruits there. There's, there's lots. I mean, you can read it and reread it and you think, oh, that, yeah, that, oh, and that. And you, and you might be thinking, oh, I'm feeling pretty uncomfortable right now. <laughs> but remember, what does Jesus say at the end? Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. If you feel this sense of like, oh, I think there is this or this is me. Well, Jesus is saying this to warn and protect you, to save you. He wounds in order to heal and he strikes in order to save. So what's the cure then? Well, that leads us to point two, the cure of false religion. What is the solution? How, you know, if most of us here are Christians, but it's potential that this applies to us, applies to me maybe, what do we do? Well, it can be tempting to think that to solve the problem of the Pharisees with their dogma and their attention to the law and their legalism and their scrupulous righteousness to trying to obey every law and save themselves. It can be tempting to think that the solution is just to relax. <laughs> Guys, chill out. God loves you. He doesn't care how you live. Just, just believe in him and just live how you want because that's what God wants for you. Don't focus on the law. Focus on grace. Don't focus on obedience. Focus on freedom and life. But that's 
That's not the solution. If you look at all of Jesus' answers, he, he doesn't say that. We have this tendency to fall on either side of the spectrum. On one side, and you'll see on the slide, there's, there's the law and legalism. And on the other side, there's what we might say license or freedom. And we think that the solution is to go from one end to the other. So if you're a legalist or, you know, p- people might say, well, just lighten up. Just, just don't be so fastidious about the law and about the obedience. Just God doesn't care. He just wants you to follow him. Or if you're down on the license side, uh, you know, the, the legalist might say to you, God cares about the law. Be holy as I am holy. What are you doing? You need to change. You need to fix up your life. If you don't, you're going to hell. And we think that the solution to one or the other is at either end of the extreme. Law or license or legalism and license. But actually both of these are wrong. Now both of these are not the solution. They're actually the, they're actually the same root problem. Sinclair Ferguson in his wonderful book, The Whole Christ, um, uses the word antinomianism for license, that other end. He says... Legalism and license, or antinomianism, are in fact non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb. Eve's rejection of God's law was in fact the fruit of her distorted view of God. You see, the problem with our hearts is that we don't think God's law is good, and we don't think that God is good, and so we think, well, the only way to please this demanding God is to either obey all of his laws... Or we think, no, God couldn't possibly want us to uh, do all this and ruin our lives with all these laws and rules, so we just get rid of the law. We go to either end. But actually, they're on the same side. Legalism and and license are on the same side. They're, They're both a misunderstanding of how good God is and how good his law is. So we can't solve the one with the other. We need a different cure. And the solution is the very thing that the Pharisees rejected. The very one that the Pharisees rejected. And the major woe that I didn't read is the solution and the the root of the problem. Look at verses 13 to 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, that's a converted person, a new believer, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You see, the problem with both of those is that they're both a rejection of Christ. The problem with the Pharisees is that they've rejected that Christ is the Lord, that he's the Messiah, that he's actually the Savior. And so by doing that, they've shut the kingdom of God in people's faces and anyone who follows them. Because of their spiritual pride, they would not accept him as their teacher or their ruler. They would not bow down to him and serve him. And therefore, Jesus says, if you do not come to me, if you do not come to Christ, you stand on the edge of hell, as it were. You see, it's Christ or nothing. The law cannot save you. Cheap grace won't save you. Only trusting in Christ will save you. 
That's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, instead of the heavy burdens, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, laden with all these teachings, these rules and these legalisms, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, so take my labor upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the tragedy is, is that in Jesus is the righteousness that the Pharisees desperately wanted for themselves, that they thought they could get through obedience to the law. And in Christ also is the grace and the freedom that we long for outside of the law by rejecting the law thinking that it couldn't possibly be in God, so I'm going to leave the church, going to leave Christianity or stay in the church, but actually my heart has left. My heart has left God and I'm, I'm here, but I'm not here. Thinking that if I just remove the rules, then I'll have true freedom and goodness. But Jesus says, come to me, because in me is grace and truth. See, here's the healthy dynamic. When you're not rotten, when you're actually healed by the gospel, this is what your, law looks, uh, your life looks like. The law, you hear the law of God, love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. You hear it and you don't think like a Pharisee, oh, I can do that. So here's what I'm going to do and I'm going to tithe my dear and I'm going to come to church. I'm going to do these things. You don't go, oh, you do that. You actually look at the law and you go, I can't do that. I can't. I can try, but I will fall short. And you start to feel guilty. And when you start to feel guilty, instead of hiding it like the Pharisees did and then just making it an external show, you realize the inside of your cup is dirty and then you plead. Oh, oh, someone cleanse the inside of my cup. Someone cleanse me from the inside out. And so the law leads you to the gospel. The law is meant to lead you to Christ. And so then you receive Christ and then you realize, oh, I have righteousness in him, the righteousness that I desire. And I have freedom and life in him, the freedom and life that I desired outside of the law I find in Christ. And then you come back to the law. And instead of the law being this burden and this heavy thing, it's actually life. It's actually good news. Instead of pretending, you're like, no, I want to obey the law. Because this is a word from God, my Father, and Christ, my Lord, my instructor. And this is good news. This is the best way to live. And so the, the gospel frees us from either error, from law and license, and shows us that in Christ we have the law fulfilled, and in Christ we have freedom, true freedom on offer. And in, in a sense, Jesus says this in verses 8 to 12. He says, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If you humble yourself, like the Pharisees wouldn't, and come to Christ, you will experience righteousness of the law that Jesus won for you and the freedom that the law actually promises you in him. You'll want to do the commands because your heart will be changed. 
And then as you walk out your Christian life, as you keep butting up against your unholiness and your, the law, and you keep realizing, I fall short, rather than hiding, you humble yourself and you say, I see life group. Can we just pause? I've blown it this week. <laughs> My life is full of sin. And you know it because I'm a Christian. That's what I declared when I became a Christian. <laughs> I'm not perfect. He is. That's why I'm a Christian. And you humble yourself and you bring it before people. And you're free to do that because you don't have to produce the righteousness. It's in Christ. And then your life group won't go, you terrible person. Be like me. Your life group ought to then come back and say, oh, yes, let's come to Christ because he's my only hope as well. And then they won't say, oh, don't worry about the rules and the laws and the holiness. They'll say, oh, yeah, no, those are really important because they're life for you in Christ. That's how it works. So the cure for the legalistic heart and the licensed spirit is the gospel of free grace proclaimed in Christ. So come to Christ. If you are aware that you're a hypocrite or you're tempted or there's fruits of hypocrisy and false worship, oh, just humble yourself, admit it, come to Christ today. Whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, come to Christ he will change the root of the tree and then new fruits will flow. Beautiful, golden, delicious fruits of the Spirit. And when you go out and proclaim the gospel, proclaim Christ, not law or license, but Christ himself. Because if you come to him, <laughs> you are offering true rest for the burdened and weary souls in the world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this hard word, this word of caution. We thank you that you give us these words to protect us, to expose the, the rottenness that might be in us. Wherever we're at today, Lord, I ask that we would come to you, not try and fake it, not try and run, and break the rules and just dispose of you, but come to you and experience rest, joy, peace, love, life, and hope. Oh, Lord, make yourself real to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.